Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In the late 1950s, Dr. Norman Shumway of the Stanford University School of Medicine dreamed of being able to replace a dying heart in a patient with a younger, healthier heart. In 1959, Shumway and his colleagues began experimenting with heart transplants by transferring the heart of one breed of dog into a two-year-old mongrel. The first transplanted dog lived for eight days, and then successive dogs after that lived even longer as Dr. Shumway perfected his technique over the years. After nine years of trial and error, Shumway became known as the father of heart transplantation when he performed the first successful human heart transplant in the United States in 1968 by putting a new heart in a 54-year-old steelworker. Early on, the mortality rate for transplant patients was still quite high because the drugs that were needed to suppress the human immune system were still not developed enough yet. But eventually, pharmacology caught up and heart transplants have become somewhat of a normal procedure these days. In fact, more than 5,000 transplants occur around the world each year, heart transplants. And the world's longest surviving heart transplant patient just passed away a couple of years ago. His name was John McCafferty from West London, England, and he had been told in 1982 at the age of 39 that he only had five years left to live. But after receiving a new heart later that year, he lived for another 33 years. You know, many have called heart transplantation a miracle of modern medicine. However, there's a doctor who has been doing heart transplants for a lot longer. Since the first century, at least, God has been giving new hearts to anyone who is willing to repent of their sin and by faith alone, in Christ alone, trust in Him for their salvation. The Scriptures teach that such a transplant is not only a miracle, but also necessary for anyone desiring a relationship with the Lord. So I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 3. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We want you to be able to follow along with me so that you can see what we're talking about. And also want to encourage you to take out your notes that are in the worship folder you received this morning. I have a lot of content I want to share with you, and I think it's very important for you to capture it and take it home and study it and learn it, as you will soon see. Our big idea for today, or the sermon in a sentence, is this, receiving a new heart through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the secret to eternal life. Receiving a new heart 
through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the secret to eternal life. I'm calling it a secret because the entire world talks about heaven all the time. The entire world wants to go to heaven and does not want to go to hell. But it seems very few know the key or the secret to getting there. One reason for this is that false gospels have stripped anything offensive uh, in the gospel, and false gospels have been spreading at least since the 19th century here in America. A.W. Tozer was concerned about this during the height of his ministry in the 1940s and 50s, and he regularly called out the cheap knockoff messages that false teachers were spreading in our country. Tozer led a large church in Chicago, Illinois, and he was considered by many to be a 20th century prophet. prophet excuse me, And so he boldly uh, exposed the half-baked gospel that was emanating from false teachers in his day. Who, and they were trying basically to make Jesus' message more palatable so they could get more hands raised and appear more successful in their ministry. And so Tozer warned his congregation in a sermon over 70 years ago with this fearless declaration. I'll share it with you. He said, In many churches, Christianity has been watered down until the solution is so weak that if it were poison, it would not hurt anyone, and if it were medicine, it would not cure anyone. As a man who will one day give an account to the Lord for his ministry, I am committed to preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached. Even if it's a gospel that's difficult to hear. Even if it's a gospel that might cause you to not come back to this church next week. Or to withhold your giving. And that's because I can't sleep well at night or stand before the Lord tomorrow if I have to, knowing that I sold out and changed the message to make it more palatable or acceptable for you. But I have to be transparent. I do struggle with that. I struggle with being true to the text. But by God's grace and His Spirit, I, He won't let me give in. And one of, the, one of the things I want to talk about this morning, or the thing, is a key doctrine. It's a key component that false teachers have been removing from the gospel that we must not leave out. It's called the doctrine of regeneration. It has significant impact in uh, value or uh, implications, is a better word, that we need to be aware of. For example, the doctrine of regeneration answers such questions as, how can we tell whether someone is genuinely saved? Or, why do some people who claim to be Christians change while others don't? Uh, another question the doctrine of regeneration answers is, why mainline denominational churches teach such things as infant baptism and church membership and communion catechism classes, but they don't save sinners. Those things don't save sinners. Or, 
Another question that this doctrine answers is why do most who undergo worldly psychotherapy or counseling not see lasting change in their lives? So this is an important issue to address, and Jesus addresses it in John chapter 3. I hope you'll follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 8. John tells us, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's the first point on your outline, and that is that Jesus required regeneration for eternal life. Jesus required regeneration for eternal life. Nicodemus was an expert in the Old Testament law, a Pharisee and a member of a of a group of Pharisees called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling council of 70 priests who made religious decisions for the people of Israel. In addition to spiritual authority, the Sanhedrin also had civil authority granted to them by the Romans. And so Nicodemus was a teacher, a religious leader, and a political leader. The interesting twist in this story is that the Sanhedrin hated Jesus and were later responsible for putting him on trial. Nicodemus was most likely coming to Jesus under the cloak of darkness so he would not be seen as becoming a friend with the enemy. The Pharisees usually approached Jesus antagonistically, but Nicodemus shows respect for him by calling him Rabbi. Now if you would look at the text in verse 3, it says, uh, Jesus says, unless one is born again. Uh, John quotes Jesus using what New Testament scholars call the first aorist passive subjunctive text. I know, you thought, I knew that. And I was going to tell you that, Pastor Kerry. But it is a form of the Greek verb to be born that I, I need to unpack a little bit for you. The, the original text literally reads word for word this, born from above. Now I don't like to get this technical, uh, but I will do so when I think it's necessary for us to completely understand what's on the printed pages of our Bible. First of all, 
when Greek scholars refer to the aorist tense, uh, it means that this birth is a one-time event at a particular point in time. Instead of an event that recurs over and over. Okay? This means that a person only needs to experience regeneration once in order to be saved. Secondly, when Greek scholars refer to the subjunctive, it means that Jesus is describing an action that has not yet taken place, but has the potential if a contingency is met. So that's what he's saying to Nicodemus. Okay, You, you can be born again, but there has to be a condition met. You've not yet, though, been born again. In this case, it means that if Nicodemus repents and expresses faith, which is the condition that needs to be met, he then can be born again and have eternal life. Thirdly, the passive voice that Greek scholars refer to means that regeneration is something that is done to the person instead of something they can do for themselves. They cannot do it to themselves. It is a work that God must do. Now, Jesus' explanation of regeneration is the fulfillment of a promise the Lord made 900 years earlier through the prophet Ezekiel when Israel was in exile in Babylon. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord promised to restore His people when He said this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let me just paraphrase, paraphrase it in this way. Regeneration is God saying, I can't do what I need to do in and through you so long as you have a heart so severely damaged by your inherited sin nature. And you can't do all that I'm going to ask you to do unless you have a new heart. And so, like a patient suffering from congenital heart failure that needs a physical heart transplant, the disease of sin has ruined our hearts so much that God says we need an operation. Not angioplasty, not a, not a bypass, not a valve repair. No, we need a spiritual heart transplant. Here's a definition of regeneration that I've been working on for a few years as I come back to this topic in my teaching ministry, and I continue to tweak it and tweak it and try and get it down into one sentence, like a Twitter post, and I want to encourage you to fill in the blanks on your outline uh, for this. So regeneration, if I were to put it in layman's terms and boil it down and make it simple, regeneration is a work of the Spirit that produces repentance and faith so that a sinner can know and love and serve God with a new heart. It, it is a work of the Spirit. It produces repentance and faith so the sinner 
can connect with, know, love, serve, and experience God with the new heart they've been given. Because they cannot know, love, and serve, and experience and connect with the Lord with the old heart that is dying of congenital sin disease. Now, if you look back at the text again in verse 5, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit. There has been much debate over the centuries as to why Jesus mentions water in this verse, and I'm not willing to die on this hill, but after studying this passage at length, I'll Here's what I think he means by this. Because Nicodemus brings up physical birth in the previous verse, Jesus was saying two births are necessary in order to receive the gift of eternal life. First, a physical birth from the water of a mother's womb. And secondly, a spiritual birth from the Holy Spirit. Now, this interpretation takes into consideration John's reference in the book of Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. In there, John records that there will be a second death for unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ. In other words, you can be born once and die twice, or you can be born twice and die once. Now just in case we misunderstood what Jesus was saying here in verse 3, He repeats His point in verse 7. You must be born again. However, the original language tells us that he modifies this statement by expanding it from singular to plural. The second person pronoun, you, that you see in your Bible, is written in the plural form. This, thus it literally reads, you all must be born from above. Meaning the entire nation of Israel and everyone else in the world, including you. And just in case it's not clear enough, when Jesus says, you must, that means it's not optional, it's not debatable, it's not negotiable, because it's His kingdom. We don't get to change it. We don't get to change the rules. We don't get to say, yeah, I'm going to change the gospel message so I can say that my loved one's going, even though they haven't met the criteria that Jesus stated. That would be like me inviting someone else to your house when you've invited me and I've met the criteria, but I bring some friends along and I don't tell them they're supposed to bring dishes too. I think you'd be offended. Now, according to John, Nicodemus took what Jesus was saying to heart and he gave his life to Christ. In John chapter 7, uh, Nicodemus was one of the few who eventually stood up for Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And in John chapter 19, he helped Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus after his death. And so, this reinforces our big idea. Receiving a new heart through repentance and faith 
in Jesus Christ is the secret to eternal life. If you would now, please turn with me to the book of Colossians. So hang a right, and let's begin to wade into the New Testament letters. I want to show you a couple passages, or excuse me, a, a few verses in the book of Colossians. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. And then after you turn, here, turn there, here's the second point on your outline. The New Testament authors paint regeneration with vivid imagery. The New Testament authors paint regeneration with vivid imagery. And they do so by using metaphors we can all understand. So we won't miss what God does when He regenerates an unbeliever. Here are just a few of the metaphors for this doctrine found in the New Testament. Uh, here's letter A. Being born again creates a new creation. So 2A is being born again creates a new creation. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time, so I'll just read the verse. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, this is where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He's saying the person who has genuinely trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they've been regenerated, they see their old self completely transformed into a new person. The Lord gives us a high-definition picture of what this looks like in nature uh, when we consider what happens to caterpillars and butterflies. Most of us learned in grade school science class that the monarch butterfly starts as an ugly, slimy, slow larva. The monarch larva uh, doesn't get printed on t-shirts or turned into jewelry or tattooed on people's skin because it's unattractive. However, after the larva forms a cocoon, it comes out a few days later transformed into something completely different than it was before. And then it is put on t-shirts and tattooed and made into jewelry. What once was slow is now fast. What once crawled can now fly. What once was ugly is now beautiful. And the butterfly, keep in mind, does not continue to slowly crawl, be slimy and ugly because it's a new creation. And the butterfly is not, not a fixed up caterpillar. He is a totally new creature who looks nothing like his previous self. One of the biggest proofs of salvation is a changed life that keeps on changing. Now, there are at least two practical reasons you need to understand this foundational 
Bible doctrine. So if you're falling asleep, wake up. You got to get this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect some dots here, okay? First of all, knowing this foundational doctrine will help you avoid the frustration of trying to fly when you are still a caterpillar. And secondly, knowing this foundational Bible doctrine will help you stop expecting caterpillars to fly and start praying for their transformation. You see, both Jesus and the apostles have said there will always be more caterpillars than butterflies and there will also be plenty of caterpillars who think they are butterflies, but they're not. Now, I always try as I'm studying God's Word to find and ask myself, and ask the Lord, excuse me, um, what, where's the hope and the encouragement in the text? And one bit of encouragement that I see in, in John 3 and 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that, Regeneration reflects the heart of a loving God who wants to turn ugly sinners into beautiful saints. Next, let's look at Colossians 2, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Colossae. And let's look at verse 11. Paul, as he's explaining what God did to these believers when they gave their life to Christ. He says this in Colossians 2.11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And let me stop there. Here's letter B. On your outline, being born again performs a new circumcision of the heart. Being born again performs a new circumcision of the heart. In the Old Testament, Jewish men were required by God to circumcise their male body parts so they would have a constant reminder that they belong to God. Kind of shows men, doesn't it, that God knew what he was doing. So every time a man would use the restroom or be intimate with his wife, they would be reminded, you belong to me. However, this exercise often ended up being an external mark like the number of cross tattoos in jewelry that we see today. The external did not reflect anything internal that had changed. And so God changed things with the gospel and what Jesus does in regeneration by doing a different kind of circumcision. Jesus not only gives the new believer a new heart, but he also cuts the heart to serve as a reminder, you belong to me. It's further proof that he wants our heart more than any external expression of religious activity. He wants our heart. And I think it further, it further illustrates what we see in the book of Acts where the gospel is going, going out and being preached. And in the book of Acts it says they were 
cut to the heart when they heard the message. So, being born again performs a new circumcision of the heart. Next, if you would, look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. As Paul continues to describe what the Lord did when He saved these Colossian believers. So he says in verse 12, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses." Here's letter C on your outline. Being born again produces a resurrection. It produces a resurrection. Instead of being spiritually dead, like we learned a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, the true believer is now made spiritually alive. Thus, individuals who have truly been born again worship Christ like they are alive. They walk with Christ like they are alive. They work for Christ like they are alive. And they witness for Christ because they are alive spiritually, not dead. They are now able to communicate with God and are sensitive to spiritual stimuli, unlike the spiritually dead that Paul describes in Ephesians 2. Charles Spurgeon once said this regarding regeneration, and I always lean on him for help because he is better with words than I am. He said this, to wash and dress a corpse is far different, a far different thing from making it alive. Man can do the one. God alone can do the other. Regeneration reveals, here again, here's the hope and the encouragement. It reveals the heart of a loving God, a powerful loving God, who can resurrect spiritually dead rebels and give them new spiritual life. Next, if you would turn with me to Titus chapter 3. I want to show you another place that regeneration shows up in the New Testament. Again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to show you here how the apostles back up what Jesus said in John 3. This is a theme that is sown throughout the New Testament. So, so this doctrine, in other words, it's not built around one passage. Instead, it's supported by multiple passages, which is how we get Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine shows up in several places, and that's how scholars and theologians form a teaching. It's not done on just one verse or one passage. So letter D, here's letter D in your outline, being born again cleanses the soul with washing. Being born again cleanses the soul with washing. And yes, I'm struggling with whether that's grammatically correct. Now, if you would look at Titus 3, Paul is writing to Titus, one of his protégés, who has been left on the island of Crete to help resolve some issues in some, a, a, a scattering of church plants on that island, and he's been appointed to select elders for those church plants. And so Paul is giving Titus some teaching and doctrine here to share with those church plants on the island of Crete. Uh, Paul writes in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there is a washing and a renewal that takes place when a new believer trusts in Christ. In order to make a completely new life possible, the Lord washes off all the dirt and stains from the old life so the new believer has a clean start. The encouragement here, I think, is that regeneration reveals the heart of a compassionate God who wants to wash the filth and the guilt and shame of our old life off so we can live a new life clean. However, we should keep in mind that anyone who keeps going back to their old life is sadly like someone who takes a shower and then puts dirty clothes back on. So, receiving a new heart through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the secret to eternal life. Finally, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 3. Here's the last passage. I want to show you where this doctrine comes up. 1 John chapter 3. The guy who wrote 1 John is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 3. You might remember from my series in 1 John a couple of years ago, one of the main thrusts, major issues, John is addressing in this first letter that has really got him fired up is the number of false converts. People claiming to know Christ, but won't walk with Him. And John spends his letter in several different ways trying to correct that and correct that. He's the oldest living disciple. It's in the early 90s AD. Jesus has died. All his friends have died. And he's now in the sunset of his life concerned about false converts hurting the witness of the gospel. And so... Here's what he says in chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Here's the third point on your outline. The Holy Spirit validates regeneration with verifiable fruit. The Holy Spirit validates regeneration with verifiable fruit. John says in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. This is a reiteration of what the apostle stated in chapter 2 of his letter. And that is simply that obedience to Christ is one litmus test for salvation. But then he adds to his list of evidence here by answering the question, well, how do you know if Christ abides in someone? Like, in addition to obedience. And John says, well, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
That's in verse 24. By this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit. If the Spirit is in them. The New Testament teaches that immediately after conversion, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the heart of the new believer. They receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit in their heart, guaranteeing their redemption. The indwelling Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus and considered proof of salvation by the apostles. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 8.9, if you want to jot that down in your margins, Romans 8.9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so just as a hospital validates your parking ticket, to prove to the parking deck attendant that you were actually there for a doctor appointment, the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the soul of a believer proves they're actually saved. Now, this logically raises a question. Okay, great. They've got to have the Holy Spirit. How can you tell if they have the Holy Spirit living within them? I am so glad you asked that. Here are some indicators of the Spirit's indwelling. It includes these things, but it's not limited to. For the sake of time, I had to restrict this, but here's a few indicators. How you can tell the Holy Spirit resides within someone proving their salvation. Letter A, the old life dies so a new life can live. The old life dies so a new life can live. Paul explained this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in order to be saved from your sins, your repentance and faith in Jesus must cause the old you to die, so a new you can be born. And those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them can give specific examples of what their old life was like before they knew Christ and what their new life is like after they came to know Christ. There's a contrast. Another sign that the Holy Spirit has taken up presence in someone's heart is letter B. There's a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. There's a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. In John 16, uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict us about sin and righteousness. And we know that the Father hates sin and loves holiness because of what He was willing to do to His own Son on the cross to solve the sin problem. He was willing to kill His Son as a result of our sin. Thus, anyone professing faith in Christ who does not feel conviction when they sin and demonstrates no desire to become like Christ, is, according to John, not a true believer. And just in case you were thinking, I'm good on letter B, because I hate everybody else's sin. Well, your own sin should be the first sin you hate. Here's letter C. A third proof of the indwelling spirit is a hunger for the scriptures. A hunger for the scriptures. Someone who has been born again 
has an appetite to learn God's word so they can grow closer to the Lord who saved them. This is why there are food metaphors in the scriptures for the scriptures, such as milk, solid food, meat, and bread. The, the authors of the New Testament describe the word of God like food for the soul. It was necessary to feed the soul, the word. So the born-again believer not only has a craving to learn the Scriptures, but also the Spirit-given ability to gain a basic understanding of them. That's what Jesus said in John 14 and 16. In John 14 and 16, Jesus said the Spirit would guide believers in the truth, which is a reference to the Word of God. Sadly, there are some who have believed the lie that a person can profess to know Christ but not open their Bibles in church, nor do daily devotions throughout the week. J.C. Ryle accurately diagnosed this problem when he wrote this back in the 19th century. Tell me what the Bible is to a man or a woman, and I will generally tell you who he or she is. This is the spiritual pulse Ryle writes, if we would know the state of the heart, I believe it to be a single evidence of the Spirit's presence when the Word is really precious to a man or woman's soul. You see, dear loved ones, God's Word and all the reputable theologians throughout church history cannot conceive of someone who professes faith in Christ but does not hunger to learn His Word. It's inconceivable. It doesn't exist in the Scriptures. And so coming to church without a Bible, not opening it when the Word is preached, not studying it throughout the week, or consulting it when you make decisions is not a result of being too busy. It is a sign of a serious spiritual problem according to God's Word. So, I have to ask the question, is God's Word precious to you? If it's not, you have a spiritual problem you need to address with the Lord. And I tell you that because I care for your soul. Next, letter D. There are increasing fruits of the Spirit. Not perfection, not immediate perfection, but there is gradual increasing fruits as the new believer indwelled by the Spirit walks with the Lord. Paul talks about this again in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Because the heart has been changed and the Holy Spirit has moved in, the regenerated Christ follower experiences emotions that were once only temporarily possible. Paul lists them as fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, not not, no believer possesses all these things at once. If we were to do a poll around the room or to install cameras in your home, I'm sure we would find that some of you are better at some of these and you struggle with others. But over time, as you walk with the Lord, there's progress 
Someone could look at the videotape and say, yeah, you know, uh, I could see that Joe struggles with kindness, but he has gotten better as he has prayed and memorized scripture and asked the Lord to help him. He's becoming kinder. He's not staying the same in that area. These qualities are more consistently seen and increasingly evident in genuine believer because their affections have changed. When the Holy Spirit moves in, he remodels the heart and changes the desires of the old person and gives them new desires. And so instead of loving themselves, they now love Christ. And instead of having a heart hardened by sin, they have a new heart softened by the Savior. Well, Applications. What should we do now that we've heard these verses? We've looked at them. and You've done a great job taking notes. I'm proud of you. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be transformed, excuse me, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so, in other words, there are some passages and scriptures that don't call us necessarily to change our behavior, but call us to change our thinking. So that's the question that I try to ask when I'm studying God's Word and preparing a message is, okay, what is the text or the text that we've surveyed calling us to do differently, either in our behavior or thinking? And here's the first one that comes to mind. Number one, application number one, assess people through the lens of Scripture. Assess people through the lens of Scripture. Just as doctors diagnose the physical condition of patients by looking for symptoms, believers need to discern the spiritual condition of others by looking for signs of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Just as assessing symptoms helps doctors treat patients, looking at others through the lens of Scripture will tell us how we should treat them, pray for them, and how we should talk to them. For example, the Scriptures give believers different directions for how they should talk to one another versus how they should talk to an unbeliever. Now, I want to say this as kindly as I can, but I, but I also need to speak plainly on this. There's a critical issue and application here of this doctrine to our lives, and it's this. Assessing people through the lens of Scripture means we need to stop calling people Christians who show no life change, no hatred of sin, no desire for holiness, no hunger for God's Word or fruits of the Spirit. Why? Because doing so is a subtle form of heresy that God hates. The first reason, it's heresy. You are indirectly saying someone is saved, but the Holy Spirit wasn't strong enough to change them. So, so when you take a loved one or a friend or a neighbor and you go, oh, oh yeah, 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 he's a, he's a believer. 
but they made a profession of faith, but there's no change in them. They don't desire to go to church. They don't desire to grow. They don't read their Bible and so on and so forth. All the proofs that I just gave you don't exist. You're saying either the Holy Spirit did not move in when the profession was made, which is heresy because the Bible makes that clear, or you're saying the Holy Spirit moved in but wasn't powerful enough to change them. And that's heresy too. Because God's Word says the Holy Spirit changes people when He moves in. It's also heresy because you are changing the gospel that Jesus preached. You know, I hate to be the messenger on this. I realize this is sensitive, but I'm trying to help you be in good standing with the Lord here. You see, because if you ascribe salvation to someone who's only made a profession, you're saying someone can be saved without being born again or regenerated. And again, that contradicts Scripture, and it especially contradicts Jesus who owns heaven and made heaven. It's His house, it's His kingdom. So, what's the implication of this application? It means you may have to change the spiritual assessment you've made of some people you love. And I know that's hard. Because no human being likes to change their thinking once they've established their thinking. We don't. Even I don't. But you might be wondering, well, how can I tell whether a person has been born again? Well, it's easy, and I'll reiterate this. I kind of hinted at this earlier. If their faith hasn't changed them, then it hasn't saved them. It's that simple. And when you're trying to discern whether a son, a sibling, a grandchild, a spouse, a co-worker is saved, you just work the salvation process backward. If there's been no transformation in a person, that means there's been no regeneration. And if there's been no regeneration, that means there's no conversion. And if you discern that they are not saved, then you start praying for their salvation and share the true gospel with them. And if they say they know the gospel, you, you throw in some other verses like, oh, that's, that's great. Did you know that that John, one of Jesus' apostles, said that anyone who claims to believe in him should also walk like him. So, so tell me, what things in your life have you done that show you're walking with the Lord? And did you know that, that the Bible also says that those who walk with him would love to go worship him at church and read the Bible and become more like Him. And I say all this to say it's safer to share the gospel with someone who shows no signs of salvation than to believe their profession and risk being wrong. Because the consequences are eternal. Number two, application number two, examine your own heart. The Scriptures make it clear. A total survey of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear 
And if you were just to read 1 John, it would be clear. There were people who existed in the New Testament in the first century who thought they were saved, but they were not. They were, as what some theologians would call, self-deceived. And My biggest fear for you as your pastor is that you might think you are when you are not. I want you to know for sure. It has nothing to do with growing up in a Christian family, how much you give to the church, how long you've been in a certain ministry, how long you've been a member, what political party you align with, or having high moral standards. Nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with, have you been born again through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? And if you're certain you've been born again, then please make sure your donor who gave you the new heart would be proud of how you're living for Christ. Please please make sure your donor doesn't regret giving you that new heart. And so live for Christ, and I don't know how else to say this, with your whole heart. Well, if you've got pain in your chest that won't go away, indigestion from sinful choices that you've made, lightheadedness from the burdens you're carrying, and shortness of breath from trying to earn your own salvation, then I want to urge you to ask the Lord for a spiritual heart transplant. It's not as hard as you might think. It's as simple as voicing a prayer from your broken heart that says, Jesus, I agree with you. I am a sinner and I need to be saved. Would you please forgive me for my sin? Give me a new heart so I can follow you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for my sin and rising again three days later so that I could have forgiveness and eternal life. If you pray a prayer like that from the sincerity of your heart, God's word promises you will not only receive a new spiritual heart, but also peace with him and a secure relationship with him, access to him in prayer, much more. So what's the secret to eternal life? It's receiving a new heart through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so I just have to ask, before we close in prayer today, How is your heart? Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.